Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the 2020 electorate. Not the election, not the candidates, the electorate, the people voting. Not all of them, of course, I couldn't squeeze in everyone, but some of the most influential groups. And stick around at the end of the show for an explanation of the connection between how black people get seated at restaurants and why Bernie Sanders struggles to attract black voters. That's going to be a good one. And now onto the show. Clips today come from Start Making Sense, The Takeaway, The Brian Lehrer Show, Election Ride Home, Pod Save the People, Interfaith Voices, The Real News Network, and Sunday Civics. Well, you open your new piece for The Nation by saying that three things conspired to make the 2016 election a perfect storm. Let's remind our listeners that the election was determined by only 78,000 votes in three states, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. What do we need to know about that perfect storm? Well, the very first thing is to not forget and to not be disempowered by the fact that Clinton got three million more votes in the country. This president is so unapologetic and destructive that we can feel like he has majority support, but he did not have majority support. So he lost by three million votes. And then even in those three states where he won the, the Electoral College, he did not get the majority of vote. And so what happened in those states is you had the progressive vote splinter, and there were big increases for Jill Stein and for Gary Johnson. Jill Stein's increase in Michigan was greater than the margin by which Trump won in Michigan. And then you had a dramatic drop in the black vote across all three states as well. Your work focuses on the changes in the makeup of the electorate since 2016. You argue that these now give a clear electoral advantage to the Democrats. Mostly, the country continues to get browner. But how significant is that going to be for the voting pool in 2020? The Constellation of Foundations did a report, Center for American Progress, Brookings, et cetera, and they looked at the demographic changes in the voting population since 2016, looking to 2020. 2020 will be the most diverse electorate ever. If 2016 is an exact replay with with all the groups voting at the same rates and the same partisan preferences, Democrats will win just on the composition the electorate has changed enough in those three states, as well as the rest of the country, to flip those states to the Democrat. So that's without doing anything. If we just do it all over again, Democrats would win because the country is that much more diverse. On top of that, there are large numbers of Americans, Latinos, in particular in these different states, who could be mobilized. We'll have four years of people who were not 18 at the time of the vote um, in 2016, have all now come into the electorate. So the electorate is going to be that much more favorable than it was uh, in 2016. Now, what about all the Republican efforts at vote suppression? Won't they continue to hurt Democrats next year and maybe even hurt more? Well, that's why they do it. They can actually count oftentimes better than Democrats. <laughs> yeah. They know what these numbers look like. We saw that happen in 2018 in Georgia in particular. And so the, the Republicans will definitely be trying to continue their voter suppression efforts. What bodes better for the Democrats this time is that one of the leading states for voter suppression in 2016 was Wisconsin, led by uh, Republican Governor Scott Walker. 
and then Michigan uh, as well, um, which was led by a Republican governor, was doing everything they could to block people from voting. Both of those states now have Democratic governors who won in 2018. They have African-American lieutenant governors in those states. So the apparatus of the government now will be put in place of actually trying to get people to vote rather than trying to block them to vote. And so that bodes even more favorable uh, for Democrats. And let's just remember that Michigan's electoral votes went to Trump only because he got 11,000 more votes than Hillary Clinton. And in Wisconsin, 22,000 votes. If we have a replay, that's the number of votes that have to switch in order for the Electoral College to go in the opposite direction. So we've been talking here about Michigan and Wisconsin. Are there red states or purple states from 2016 that could go Democratic next year because of these population changes? Yes, very much so. And also on top of that, you have the results from 2018. Yeah where there was significant infrastructure built, people registered, mobilized, organized, particularly in Georgia and Florida, and also in Arizona. And so those three states are all trending Democratic. And so if there's significant effort to build upon what was done in 2018 and to register and increase and mobilize voters in those states, then all three of those states are winnable states. And then also there was North Carolina's in the mix, which has a, a, believe a trifecta this coming year, presidential battleground, gubernatorial, and a competitive Senate race. So all of those states, and those states are really more, from a future standpoint, even more promising, because the trends are very much accelerated there in terms of how diverse they're becoming, consequence of the, the Puerto Rico um, crisis. People moving to Florida, so large numbers of Puerto Ricans in that state, making it even more diverse. So between consolidating the Rust Belt and investing in the Sun Belt, the numbers exist. The Democratic vote can be consolidated and mobilized. We haven't yet talked about white people. Now, a clear majority of white people have been voting Republican for decades, especially white men, especially older white men. And there's that horrible statistic from 2016, 53% of white women voted for Trump. Do you see any chance of changing some of that? Yes. 2018... There were a number of white women, particularly suburban white women, who had finally had enough of Trump. And so he, the, the Republicans had a 10-point advantage in the 2016 election among white women. But in the 2018 election, it was a dead, a dead, dead heat. So some of those uh, Republican white women cannot put up with this any longer. And so some of them are gettable in terms of being able to put together our coalition. I mean, it is important to realize that that is the population, this notion about trying to get the conservative white male working class, which is what too many people are obsessed about. There's very little data that there is possible to make headway beyond the ones who are already with us except among those who may have defected third and fourth parties. So we should be able to actually try to attract those folks back. But it's really, in terms of the white vote, the suburban white Republican women who are the most susceptible to being won over. And we're talking specifically here about white college-educated women are the ones who shifted from Republican to Democratic in the 2018 congressional elections. Is that right? Yes, the college-educated is the grouping. 
Uh, and that's the point, one point I'm trying to make in the article, too, and then, you know, Ron Brownstein talks about this a lot, is that there's fundamentally a struggle within this country. It's not any accident that Trump was elected after the first black president. There's a coalition of transformation, which is what we call the Obama coalition, and Brownstein called the coalition of restoration, which is to make America a great crowd, <laughs> make great again crowds back when we were segregated and women were second-class citizens. So that's the fundamental battle and divide. And fortunately, the coalition of transformation is larger and gets bigger with the increasing diversity. Every single day in this country, there's 7,000 more people of color out of the population versus 1,000 whites. So the trend is irreversible at this point. And so I just think it's important that we hold that knowledge and carry ourselves with the confidence that we do our work right. We Democrats should win. And we should not be trying to sacrifice our values at this altar of electability that somehow um, we're in a one-down position and we have to, to you know, cast about to try to get somebody who can beat Trump. The numbers are in our favor. If we organize, mobilize, and inspire, he should be defeated. When it comes to elections, there's always a key voting block that gets the media attention. You know, if candidate X wins fill-in-the-blank vote, they'll win the election. We've heard that about the Latino vote. Who will win the election three weeks from now? The outcome could depend on how members of one very large constituency respond to the urgent call, VOTA. The white working class. With the general election in mind, Hillary Clinton is on a two-day swing through Appalachia, trying to connect with rural, white, working-class voters. Appalachia coal has taken a huge hit. And suburban women. Women, white and educated. Experts say they hold the key to this year's midterms. Can I have a small beet salad to go? But a core constituency of the Democratic electorate has not gotten the same level of attention. African-Americans. African-Americans are just like other voters. They need to be asked. They need to be not taken for granted. They need to be included. That's Congresswoman Gwen Moore. She represents the 4th District of Wisconsin, which includes Milwaukee County, a Democratic stronghold, where 60,000 fewer votes were cast in 2016 than in 2012. Congresswoman Moore thinks that's because Democrats didn't campaign hard enough in her district. You could hear a mouse pee on cotton. In Milwaukee, it was so slow. Still, the narrative that emerged about the Democrats' loss in 2016 was about the white working class. And then this happened. And CNN projects Doug Jones, the Democrat. He will be the next United States senator from Alabama. Who has defeated Republican Roy Moore. First Alabama Democrat in a quarter century. President Trump has just tweeted his congratulations to the Democrats. This is a dramatic Democratic upset in deep red Alabama. A ruby red state. Becoming the first Democratic senator from Alabama in a generation. I have been waiting all my life and now I just don't know what the hell to say. The big story here is the African-American turnout. Black Americans showed up in record numbers, as we've been reporting. The numbers, the percentages that came out to this election. Especially black women, African-Americans, made up 29% of Alabama voters. Rival what we saw for presidential elections with the first African-American president, Barack Obama. Doug Jones wins the Senate race in Alabama, a victory due in large part to the influence of African-American voters. The party itself acknowledged for the first time that black women 
were the core. That was a turning point, according to Amy Allison, founder of She the People. And I would also extend that to women of color, to Asian-American women who are the second most progressive force and a fast-growing part of the electorate and Latinas, as well as, as Muslim voters. This is a group of progressive voters, and we never got much cred or respect or investment in our strategy. Alicia Garza agrees. She's a founder of the Black Lives Matter Global Network and the head of the Black Futures Lab. The frustration that I think a lot of Black communities faced was that it was already assumed that Black people would vote for a, a particular candidate. And I think what we saw instead was that um, because of the lack of deep engagement in Black communities, specifically after uh, the administration of the first Black president of the United States, is the Black turnout went down and Democrats lost the election. So what are they doing about it? The Black Futures Lab set out to survey Black people about their experiences with the aim of actually listening to them. The results of the survey were recently released in a report titled More Black Than Blue, Politics and Power in the 2019 Black Census. I spoke with Alicia Garza about the findings. The issues that Black communities find are the most pressing problems facing our communities in our survey sample. Low wages that are not enough to support a family, the rising cost of college, unaffordable health care. It looks at unaffordable housing as some of the top issues that Black communities are facing. Another issue that we found that Black communities were facing is a concern about violence that exists in our communities, particularly police violence and violence that is as a result of policing. It's interesting when I when I look at the, those list of priorities, where and how intensely Black voters feel about those, it kind of reads like a Bernie Sanders press release. And yet Bernie Sanders did really struggle in 2016 winning over African-American voters, black voters, and continues to have to answer questions about why he's not doing as well among black voters this time. Can you help us square that circle? He's hitting all of the issues but he's not winning over the voters. I think that it's really not just a Bernie Sanders problem, although we did see this very poignantly in 2016, certainly in the primary between Bernie Sanders and Secretary Clinton. But to be honest, it's a problem that exists in politics in general, where what you have is advice that's being given by consulting firms that are largely white-led that will tell you that Black voters are already in the pocket, that you should not talk about issues of race. You'll see pundits out, you know, on the news circuits saying that things like identity politics are splitting the parties. And I think what we find on the ground is that people understand very clearly that what's dividing us is not talking about race. What's dividing us is not talking about the racial divide. And so when you try and talk about issues in such a way where they are presented as a silver bullet that affects all communities equally. The only people that lose from that, to be frank, are the people who are locked out of the economy, the people who are locked out of prosperity, and the people who are locked into poverty. And the reality is when we look at poverty rates in this country and we look at who is concentrated under the poverty line, it is communities of color and it is black communities. It was not a surprise to us that low wages that were not enough to support a family were one of the top issues impacting Black census respondents. 
What was surprising to us is that candidates in their campaigns continue to push race-neutral messaging when we all know that the economy is racialized. We are all very clear that communities of color tend to be locked into low-wage, low-paying, low-road jobs. Uh, we know that those jobs tend to not carry medical benefits or health benefits. We know that those jobs are often locking out communities who may have histories of incarceration. And of course, we know that Black communities are disproportionately incarcerated. And when we look at Black women in particular, who have been seen as a key block of Black communities for a, a supportive voting base for the Democratic Party, we find that Black women's populations are increasing in prisons and jails across the country. And the number one reason that Black women are being locked up at disproportionate rates is because of economic crimes, things like passing a bad check or other ways in which uh, Black women have found that they have had to learn how to survive. op-ed piece is about sort of the the ritual every year of candidates going to have fried chicken in Harlem with hot sauce. You didn't mention this, but there's almost always a stop at Sylvia's uh, and how frustrating that is. That sort of that is the sort of gesture, but um, the uh, sort of meaning and the dialogue stops there. So talk to me a little bit. And I, I presume you're talking now to the Democratic field. What is it that you would like to see from the candidates? Well, one of the things that we should just be super clear about is exactly what you said. Uh, Sylvia's is a great restaurant, so let's just be clear about that. Their food is incredible. Uh, but that can't be the totality of engagement that candidates do with black communities. And I believe that Sylvia's and others would probably agree with that. Uh, this isn't an indictment on food. It's an indictment on the ways in which candidates and their campaigns shortchange black communities by engaging us symbolically rather than substantively. Many people might be surprised to know that there are black people that don't even like fried chicken. And so as a result, you're going to have to do a little bit more in order to capture our votes. One of the things that is important for us to communicate to candidates and their campaigns uh, is that uh, when you use these types of symbols uh, that in some ways draw on stereotypes about our communities, it makes it clear to black communities that not only do you not have a relationship with us, uh, but you may or may not be interested in developing a deeper one. Candidates and campaigns should engage black communities in the ways that we exist. And anybody who's ever been to a black person's household during a holiday season knows that black communities are incredibly complex. We have, you know, uh, our bougie cousin, right? We have our cousin from the hood. Uh, we have our black power uncle, right? We have our church-going grandmother. Uh, and so the reality is, if you want to engage a black family, you've got to engage a black family. <laughs> you've got to go to a number of different places uh, where black people are. You have to be able to be fluent 
in the experiences that black people are having, whether it's healthcare, uh, and particularly when you go into the South, you need to be able to talk about uh, how you're going to expand programs like Medicaid and Medicare. Um, you need to be able to talk about uh, the, the racial dynamics that exist in, you know, keeping money from expanding programs uh, that disproportionately uh, uh, help Black communities in particular uh, have access to health care. You've got to address uh, not only student debt, but you have to address the cost of college. You've got to understand that most black families in this country uh, make at least $10,000 less than the cost of one year of a four-year public college. You've got to be able to address those issues. And unfortunately, fried chicken and hot sauce won't get you there. What will get you there are town halls and other meaningful avenues of engagement where you are asking black people what it is that we are experiencing, where you are listening to those experiences, where you're listening to the ideas that we have for solutions, and where you're putting policy solutions forward that not only address the issue itself, but address the impact of structural racism on those issues so that black people can benefit from the changes that you're proposing in the first place. Today's episode is sponsored by Babbel, the language learning app that will get you speaking a new language quickly and with confidence. Babbel's teaching methods have been proven to be effective across multiple studies. They're designed by over 100 language experts to get you speaking your new language within weeks, and you learn through interactive dialogues so you can perfect your pronunciation and accent with the help of Babbel's speech recognition technology. Plus, the lessons only last 10 to 15 minutes, so they can be both engaging and convenient. And since it's 2019, Babbel is available as an app or online, and your progress will be synced across devices. I've been using Babbel for my language lessons because I recognized a long time ago exactly what Babbel is claiming, that their lessons are designed to get you started quickly, engaging in dialogue scenarios that you will actually use in real-life interactions. So if you're ready to start speaking a new language, go to babbel.com or download the app, select the language of your choice, and try it completely free. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com. Babbel, speak a new language with confidence. First up, some news on voter turnout during the 2018 midterm elections. This is a leading indicator of what we might expect in a 2020 election, and the news from yesterday evening is simple. Young people are turning out in historic numbers. According to Jordan Misra at the U.S. Census Bureau, writing about the 2018 election, and yes, this is your tax dollars in action, quote, Voter turnout went up among all voting age and major racial and ethnic groups. 53% of the citizen voting age population voted in 2018 the highest midterm turnout in four decades, while the 2014 election had the lowest, end quote. I think we should digest that one for a moment, because there are a lot of important numbers there, and some of them are actually implied rather than stated. So, to recap, turnout overall was the highest in 40 years, but the midterm right before that one, the midterm in 2014, had the lowest turnout in more than 70 years. That change is shocking, and it has real implications for what may happen in the general election coming up in 2020. But that's not all. Things get really interesting when you focus in on younger voters. 
Here's one more bit from Misra. Quote, Among 18 to 29-year-olds, voter turnout went from 20% in 2014 to 36% in 2018, the largest percentage point increase for any age group, a 79% jump, end quote. Well, okay, so saying that a little over a third of young voters came out to vote in 2018 may not sound like much, right? But to put that in perspective, the Washington Post reports that the 2018 turnout for that age range was the highest in a hundred years. Let me say that one more time for the folks in the back. Young people turned out at the highest rate in a century in the 2018 midterms. The Post also noted that turnout among voters ages 30 to 44 went up as well. Overall, this means that everybody from age 18 all the way up to age 44 is turning out in much higher numbers than we've seen in a very long time. Here's a bit from the Washington Post. Quote, Democrats won 67% support among voters younger than 30 and 58% among those ages 30 to 44 both groups in which turnout increased dramatically compared with 2014, end quote. The Post also spoke to Michael McDonald, an associate professor at the University of Florida and an expert in voter turnout. McDonald called the 2018 midterm, quote, the storm of the century, end quote. And Ed Kilgore over at New York Magazine also looked at what McDonald had to say, quoting McDonald again. Even states without competitive statewide elections saw record turnout which makes clear that national factors, including support and opposition to the Trump presidency, were driving factors to the polls, end quote. And Kilgore went on to comment on that, quote, With Trump himself on the ballot, any boost he provided to midterm turnout should continue, if not intensify, in 2020. But as the same report showed, another factor that apparently helped improve turnout in 2018 should do the same in 2020 the steady spread of reforms making it easier to register to vote and to cast votes from home, end quote. All right, so the takeaway here is that if Democrats put a viable candidate in the field in 2020, just based on the raw voter turnout numbers we're seeing lately, that candidate has a good shot of winning the race. And that's especially true if the candidate can build a coalition that explicitly includes and appeals to younger voters. That does not mean the candidate must actually be a young person, but it does mean the candidate has to speak seriously about issues that matter to that group. Necesitamos incluir cada persona en el éxito de esta economía. La situación, la situación ahora es inaceptable. Y estoy postulando por presidente de los Estados Unidos. Democratic presidential candidates Beto O'Rourke, Cory Booker, and Julian Castro speaking Spanish at the first round of primary debates last month. Some might call this an effective political strategy. Others call it hispandering. Felt a little bit like hispandering to me. This term hispandering has been floating around the internet a lot this week. What some would call hispandering. 
Either way, we can't ignore the growth of the Latino population in the United States. There are nearly 60 million Latinos in the country, an all-time high, according to the latest numbers from the Pew Research Center. And while the rate of growth has slowed, Latinos still accounted for more than half the total population increase in the U.S. between 2008 and 2018. So today on The Takeaway, we're breaking down what this population growth looks like and whether it will actually translate to political power. To help me answer that question, I have Mark Hugo Lopez, Director of Global Migration and Demography Research at Pew. Great to have you back on the show, Mark. Thank you. Also with us is Clarissa Martinez, the Deputy Vice President at Unidos U.S., a Latino civil rights organization. Thanks for being with us, Clarissa. Thank you. Clarissa, I want to bring you in here. We're heading into a pretty contentious political election in 2020. Uh, it's been a really interesting political season so far, to say the least. Let's talk about turnout um, for Latinos. It always seems to be an issue, although in 2018, there was a different Pew study for the midterms that found that more than a quarter of the Latinos who showed up to the polls said they were voting in a midterm for the first time. What do you think galvanized Latino voters in that election? We know that Latinos are seeing the environment around them become very threatening in many ways. And we are seeing that now as we go into this weekend, it seems that the president, whenever he feels threatened or there is a potential for news that he doesn't like to come out, he comes after the Latino or the immigrant community. So he's putting raids back on the table this weekend. But that's that's what's happening in these couple of years. The reality is that at Unidos U.S., and we're a civil rights organization that's been around for now 50 years, I feel that the story of the Latino vote and the understanding of this electorate and how to mobilize it or engage it, we have been putting that playbook out for a long time. But in many ways, you have candidates and campaigns that are not necessarily doing their homework in reaching out to this community and simply take it for granted and or ignore it. So some of that has been changing. Two notable ways, in addition to the growth of the community, which continues to feed a very fast growth in the electorate that is Latino, we also uh, have seen an emergence of, of more community and nonpartisan efforts to drive up voter registration since there is very little investment in voter registration. And also this last year, going specifically to your question, we also saw a lot more uh, campaigns and local efforts to reach out and introduce themselves to these voters. So that in addition to the concerns that Latinos have, is feeding into that that we saw last year, where nearly 20 districts were a factor in determining who controls the House were decided by Latino voters. So let's talk a little bit about that, because um, in 2016, Hillary Clinton got about 66 percent of the Latino vote. In the midterm elections uh, in 2018, Democrats won 69 percent of the Latino vote. Are Democrats assuming that they have the Latino vote based on those numbers, Clarissa? I think they have, and they have done that for a long time. Now, anybody who knows elections knows that it's not just about percentages, it's also about numbers, right? And so 
Latinos traditionally, they are not democratically oriented by genetics or anything like that. But, you know, more or less, Latinos tended to have an affinity towards Democrats, two to one compared to Republicans. We are seeing that change right now. So we just released a poll of Latino voters in this last month, where rather than ask Latinos how they feel about the 300, you know, primary candidates, many of whom are strangers, we ask them what they want to see in a presidential candidate. And one of the top characteristics for Latinos is somebody who will unify the country. So that probably is no surprise. Latinos are not alone in feeling not only that there's a lot of divide and conquer politics, but frankly, they're also finding themselves as the target or the pawn in that narrative. Even though, as Mark was saying, the growth of the Latino community shows that eight out of 10 Latinos in this country are United States citizens, yet the rhetoric that Latinos are seeing right now oftentimes leads to an erosion of civil rights, civil liberties, and an increase in discrimination. I want to also ask you, Mark, about where Latinos are going, where they're where they're settling, the demographic shifts that we're seeing. Because you know, fifty years ago or even more, I think a lot of the the the, the migration patterns were essentially headed to Los Angeles, New York City, Chicago, Miami. That's changing, right? That so we have seen over the last twenty, thirty years a dispersion of the Hispanic population across the country. So now you look uh, in all parts of the country, there is some Hispanic presence in just about every county. And what this really speaks to is this speaks to both how how um, quickly this population has grown and how large this population is. Sixty million people makes up about eighteen percent of the U.S. population. But it's important to note that still California, Texas, Florida, uh, Illinois, New York, New Jersey. These are the states that generally still have the most Hispanics and the largest part of the Hispanic population. Uh, however, we have seen growth in places like the South over the last 20 years, uh, if not more, and also now uh, growth in places like Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota. Those are some of the fastest growing Hispanic populations admittedly, starting from a small base. But this does reflect some of the economic changes happening, for example, in North Dakota, that's attracting not only Hispanic workers, but other workers as well. And Hispanics are part of that broader story of population growth there. And Clarissa, I want to ask you to weigh in on that, because what does that look like for uh, political strategy here? I mean, once we see uh, this population expanding, like Mark said, to places like Montana, North Dakota, where the numbers may not be as large as they are in New York and New Jersey and Los Angeles, but there's still a shift happening there. Are we to assume that that will translate to votes? Yes, it will translate into votes. The question is, how many votes, right? And what I mean by that is we at Unidos U.S. do a lot of uh, voter registration, nonpartisan. We don't care what party people are going to support in the election, but we want to make sure that eligible Americans are able to vote, and particularly Latinos, many of whom, as Mark noted from the research, every cycle will be first-time voters. Um, they need more information. They need more exposure to the system. I would say that where it comes to the candidates, Latinos, like any other voter, want to see three basic things. Uh, they believe that candidates matter, that their those candidates' positions matter, and that meaningful outreach is essential. 
Uh, we're seeing some changes in that, but it certainly still has a lot of room for improvement. And I bet you that in the places where Latinos are a very small part of those communities, that outreach can potentially be more anemic. But one of the takeaways here, uh, to borrow from the name of the show, we'll is take that, it. <laughs> yeah, it's is that you know a lot of these bits of information that are coming out are not necessarily new, right? As Mark was saying, these are trends from the last thirty years or so. Um, I bet many of your listeners are not even that old, so they've been happening for a while. One of the takeaways, perhaps, is. Building on what we know in those trends is that for anyone who cares about improving educational outcomes, advancing an economy that works for working class families, um, healthy communities, we know access to, you know, the cost of healthcare is a huge concern, humane immigration policies, among other similar areas for anybody who cares about those things. The growth of the Latino electorate should be a welcome development because even though we're not a monolith, those are the issues that drive the majority of the voters in this community. Yeah, and this has me thinking about a survey that was released, I think it was last year, by the Public Religion Research Institute. And what it found was that there's been a lot of discourse around evangelicals and how evangelicals vote or evangelicals' hypocrisy in terms of supporting Trump. And I think it's similar to when people say, like, the working class or the rural voters or this and that. And, like, we're not being specific and we're being imprecise in our descriptions of these groups of people because there are Black people who live in rural areas. There are indigenous people who live in rural areas. There are Latinx and Black evangelicals. There are certainly Black and Latinx working class folks and Asian American working class folks. And so, you know, we use these sort of metonyms to try to say something without actually being precise about who we're talking about. And one of the things that this survey does, it finds that there are a range of disparate sort of um, political dispositions, I'll say, that white evangelicals and their black and brown counterparts hold. And I'll pull a few of these out specifically on issues of like race and immigration. So for example, the survey found that most white evangelicals don't have positive views about America's growing racial and ethnic diversity. The survey asked participants how they felt about the fact that the U.S. Census projects that by 2045, black people, Latinx folks, Asians, and mixed race individuals will together compromise the majority of the United States. We can put a pin in that and talk about the way that whiteness moves and evolves. And like, I don't actually believe that by 2045, it'll be a majority minority country, as it's often said, but that's a side note. Again, so white evangelicals were the only major group who said they had negative feelings about this demographic change. 54% of white evangelical Protestants said that America becoming a majority non-white nation will have a mostly negative effect on the country. On the other hand, 80% of black Protestants and 79% of Latinx Protestants thought that the country's coming racial and ethnic realignment would be a positive thing. They also found that in the weeks before the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting, researchers found that most Black Protestants, 75%, and most Latinx Protestants, 63%, said that they believed that Trump's decisions and behaviors had encouraged white supremacist violence. On the other hand, white evangelicals were less likely to see a connection between Trump and white supremacists. Only 26% of white evangelicals said that Trump's decisions and behaviors were encouraging 
white supremacist violence. Uh, and then, and on the issue of immigration, unlike other demographics, white evangelicals said that immigrants represented a threat to America's customs and values. 57% said that immigrants threatened American society, and only 43% said immigrants strengthened American society. Protestants of color, as the trend continues, tended to have much greater support for immigrants, about 63% of Latinx and 67% of Black Protestants said that immigrants strengthen society. And so, you know, I think that what this does is illuminates the sort of divergences that exist between different groups of evangelical Protestants. And it's a reminder that the entanglement of race and religion and identity is real in shaping someone's political dispositions and ideologies. And that Black and brown folks, as this survey illuminates, and, and I think as a range of other data has also supported, have a very different idea of the role that God plays in their political lives and what that says about the sort of world and society that they want to live in. And unfortunately, the majority of white evangelicals at this point in our history are envisioning a world that is tied to nostalgia and that nostalgia is tied to exclusivity and whiteness and the oppression of people who don't look like them. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. Y you know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case... You might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. I'm a pastor who does not want to align with either political party in a public manner. I may have my own views, and I do, and I'll vote the way that I choose to vote. But I think the worst thing that you can do is to become a pundit for a, a party. So I, I want to challenge people how we treat people. Uh, Jesus made it clear in Matthew 25, I was thirsty, I was hungry, I was naked, I didn't have clothing, I was sick, I was in prison. I want to speak to those issues regardless of the party. But if I but if I come across as a conduit for the Democrats or a conduit for the Republicans, I've lost my prophetic voice. Now I'm a pundit with a specific party line encouraging them to do. Here's what I would say. I don't care what party you're in. Justice should be an issue. No matter what party you're in, compassion should be an issue. No matter what party you're in, service to those people should be an issue. So those are the things that I want to push and I want to preach to. There's sometimes I may think more like a Democrat and how I want to respond to this. Other things more like a Republican. But but I think the moment people view you as a Republican Christian pastor or a Democrat Christian pastor, you've lost your ability to be a prophetic voice. You've now marginalized yourself. Mm. Are you an outlier among your peers? 
Among my older peers, yes. Among my younger peers, not at all. What is happening among your younger peers in the evangelical world? Well, this is huge, and this is what gives me hope. So people who look at evangelicals and think that we're all harsh and mean-spirited and we don't like people and we want to make it hard on people, uh, please be patient uh, because there's a whole new crop that's coming up. I would say uh, don't buy that line as well because I'm an older evangelical and I care about people. And there, there are evangelicals that are like me that, that do. A lot of times people will ask me, Bob, what is the difference in all the evangelical tribes and denominations and groups? I don't think that's a relevant question anymore. What's the right question? The right question is what's taking place between older and younger evangelicals. That's the right question. But the problem is the younger evangelicals don't yet have the platforms, mm. but they definitely have different views. So they would share the theology of their parents, but not the practice of it. So here's what I'd say. The big divide is between the older and the younger. And here's how we see it played out. Number one, it's between a national faith and a global faith. If you listen to many older Christians, it's all about my country and me and my and what's going on here and how can we get things back to what they were. My generation visited other states, but my children have visited all over the world. Mm -hmm. And even for those kids who haven't visited all over the world, it's brought the Internet to us. So the result is kids are more global now, whether they want to be or not. Mm -hmm. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But when you see things from a global perspective, you don't necessarily hold the party line at all times. The next thing I would say is I think the older generation is more tribal. You know, this is who we are. We're sticking together. We're fighting together. I, I would say the younger generation is far more inclusive. I may disagree with you, but I want to be a friend with you. Mm. Tribalism leads to exclusivity. If you're not in my tribe, I'm not going to be in a relationship with you. It's just like my kids. They're, my kids are, are conservative evangelicals, but they have a little communist Vietnamese exchange student mm. living with them this year. Uh, I, I know of many of my uh, evangelical pastor friends have no issue with being in a friendship relationship with somebody in the LGBTQ community. That's not an issue. They may disagree with them, but they're not going to be isolated. Why? Uh, because they're not tribalists. They're thinking more in terms of, this is what I hold on to my faith with, but I'm not going to exclude people mm. from, from being human beings. We're all created in the image of God. I, I think that's a big deal. Do you think tribalism is unique to a generation or is it a, is it a condition of how humans are tend to look at and try to make sense of the world? I'm convinced it's a human condition because you see the same thing happening in Islam and Judaism. The whole world is tribalizing right now, but I'm optimistic that those that are between the ages of 14 or 15 and their early thirties, I'm more optimistic that they're not going to stay within their tribes as much. Mm. And I'm seeing that take place. I would say orthodoxy versus orthopraxy. What's orthopraxy? Ortho or orthodoxy is the idea that I hold to orthodox, traditional, fundamental beliefs. Textual. Yes. Orthopraxy is how I practice mm. that. So orthodoxy says we ought to love everybody. Orthopraxy says, yeah, and what about the racial issues? And what about people of different religions? Do we love them as well? How, how far are we going to practice it? Just part of the way. Orthopraxy sounds like it has a lot of wrestling involved in it. It does. It does. So it's not just a matter of do you believe it? How do you practice it? And with my parents' generation, it was sufficient 
just to believe it. Here's another thing. You know, to practice it, yeah, practice it, but don't make yourself uncomfortable. Here would be another big difference. I think my parents' generation and sadly my generation defined church as the church service. What is it like? Was it traditional or, or contemporary or mm-hmm. how did you do that Sunday event? So it was about the church service. I think millennials, it's about the church serving. But how do we serve? But beyond just the practice of that, as Christians, shouldn't we be serving people, helping the poor, helping refugees, helping immigrants, helping anyone who is suffering and hurting? Shouldn't we be involved in that? And and the answer is yes. The existential threat of climate change has become a key issue in the Democratic presidential primary. It was the number one issue that Democratic voters said they wanted to hear about in the debates. A July CBS News survey found that 78% of Democratic voters in early primary states actually called the topic very important. But the climate crisis is increasingly important to some Republicans, too, specifically young Republicans. A Harvard University survey of voters under the age of 30 found that 73 percent of the respondents disapproved of President Trump's approach to climate change. And half of those surveyed were actually independents or Republicans. These shifting attitudes have grabbed the concern of some presidential strategists, some Republican strategists. But will that be enough to change the Republican Party? Now joining us to talk about this is Lisa Friedman. She's a reporter on the New York Times Climate Desk, and she focuses on climate and environmental policy in Washington, D.C. She wrote the new piece, Climate Could Be an Electoral Time Bomb Republican Strategist Fear. You can read it in the New York Times now. Thanks for being here, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me. So in your piece, you looked at not only the Harvard poll that I mentioned earlier, but but also uh, some uh, survey data from the Pew Research Center from 2018. They found that uh, nearly 60% of Republicans between the ages of 23 and 38 said that climate change is having an effect on the United States, uh, and some 36 believed that that was human-caused. And you also spoke with uh, not only these strategists, but with young Republicans who care about climate change. Did you get a sense of what's kind of causing the shift among young voters? So... Almost across the board, the young Republicans that I spoke to weren't shifting at all. They were to a person telling me that they have never not questioned the science of climate change. Um, they, you know, the, 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 you know, I, I spoke with with a, a young man from South Carolina. He's a hunter. He is eager to get his concealed weapons permit. He is pro-life. He um, he campaigned for Rick Santorum in 2016. Um, you know, sort of hits all of the the Republican bona fides, and um, you know. But he was he was telling me, look, you know, climate change is not something that I I ever didn't think was real. We just didn't have a place to talk about it in my party. Um, and, and that's what he and other of the young activists that I talked to were in Washington trying to do, trying to create a space where they could have a conversation with Republican lawmakers about Republican approaches, conservative approaches to a problem. And you also, of course, spoke with, uh, political advisors, analysts, strategists. What was their reaction to this data? Uh, and do they see that it could have an impact on policy platforms, uh, on strategy for the future? Sure. 
Well, I mean, just to take a step back, the way this started story started was, you know, I wanted to set out to understand how are Republicans treating the issue of climate change in the 2020 campaign. Right. Um, you know, we've seen slight shifts in Congress. We've seen members of, of the Republican Party um, start to talk about climate change more openly, start to acknowledge the science, start to uh, put forward ideas, whether it is investing more in carbon capture and storage technology or nuclear um, or other things that, that you know, are, are more in line with the with what their party would seek as a solution to a, to a problem they haven't quite embraced or acknowledged is happening as a party um and so what i found was that republican strategists all are looking at this data they all see these numbers that i that you put up on the screen from pew from harvard um from, from other public you know from other polling outlets showing that young people, young Republicans, overwhelmingly acknowledge the science, care about climate change, want to see the party take action. Um, and what they all told me was, we know that there is going to come a time when the party is going to have to shift nationally on this issue. But that time is not now. It's not going to happen in 2020. Um, we might see some members of Congress in some areas, um, you know, move, you know, move on this issue. But nationally, as a party, that's that's not um, that's not where where the party is right now. And it's to the great frustration of a lot of these younger voters that I talk to. This argument has been raging now in and among Democrats now since 2016, that there's an either or strategy. Either you go and you win back working class whites and appeal to suburban college educated white voters, or you can have voters of color and young people as your coalition. What do you say to that? I say that there always is a choice. And I would say the Democrats have been organizing themselves on the previous, on the, on the former. In other words, the bulk of the spending, and let's, I, I want to talk money. It's a business. Electoral politics is a business grounded in values. So if moderate white voters, you think, are the magic pill that's going to help you win the White House, it affects everything from where you go, where you campaign, what organizations um, and validators that you bring into the campaign, where you spend your money, what your message is, and how you look at the win number for particular states. Mm -hmm. I would say without hesitation that the campaigns who are not organized around expanding the electorate for the strongest Democrats are in a weak position to actually win the primary and the general because they're relying on and spending the bulk of their resources on the least reliable Democrats out there. We have the numbers to have a winning coalition. When I say women of color are the center of the coalition as the strongest Democrats, it is that you start from there but build out a multiracial inclusive coalition, which includes white voters. It includes the whole range of voters, but it is a new way of thinking, a new playbook that leans deeply into 
creating a coalition expressly that embraces this identity and centers on these on these voters. So in a state like Texas, Texas went from a 16-point gap to a three-point gap in this last uh, midterms. And what that means is Texas could turn blue. But the way that we turn blue is not going after Trump voters in that state. The way we turn Texas blue is by tapping into the force of the 5 million eligible unregistered Latinas in, in the state. There's a, incredible numbers that require an investment. So they, you know, you can't say, oh, it's both and. And that actually isn't the way that electoral politics has, you know, works. So right. what we're looking for as women of color are the campaigns that are ready to do on the ground, old fashioned door to door field organizing in those key states. Cause I think that's going to be the, the, the key to victory. But first, I'm not sure if you are aware of what time it is in this election cycle. Um, not that we actually haven't gotten to the voting part yet. So which blows my mind that we're already at this point of which I call the voter blame game. When we get to big election cycles like the presidential and midterms, the spotlight every now and then shines its light on the electorate where it should be. <laughs> there is a considerable amount of attention that campaigns and candidates pay to what we call prime voters or high propensity voters. Those are the voters who show up to the polls for every single election. I'm talking the presidential, the midterm, even local elections. These voters tend to skew older. They're more economically stable, and they don't move a lot. They kind of tend to stay in one place. They also tend to vote in all contests, completing the entire ballot, voting up and down. We also have what we call the mid-propensity voters, or those who show up for the big elections that are held in November. They are November voters. So whether it's the presidential, a gubernatorial race, or their municipal or mayor elections, they vote in big contests. But those who bear the brunt of what I call the voter blame game are low propensity voters. These voters tend to be younger. They're transient, meaning they move a lot. They're like students and others. And although they are registered to vote in the business, they aren't reliable voters. We have to put some work in to get them to turn out. But we blame low propensity voters for not caring enough about elections. We blame them for staying home. We blame them for not coming out recently to elect Hillary Clinton, and we blame them for the election of Donald Trump. Now, low propensity voters were key in what we call the Obama coalition. They were central to his victory in 2008 and to a certain extent in 2012. But let's review the historical anomaly of the Obama election. He's a once in a generation inspiring candidate who put a team together to actually do the work of engaging these voters. He was both inspiring as a person and he engaged these voters. And remember, the work he and his team did proved that they could elect Barack Obama, but they failed to replicate that win in midterm elections. So now here we are today. 
with strategists and pundits and campaigns blaming those voters who stayed home in 2016 when they didn't do the work that produced the Obama voter coalition back in 2008. They didn't fully engage those coalition of voters and they didn't build an election protection apparatus to combat voter suppression activities. Lastly, among the Obama coalition voters are black voters who are also a key target in the voter blame game. You may hear some semblance of this. Um, Have black voters shown up for Clinton the way they did for Obama is the current talking point. And the suggestion that Barack Obama himself needs to talk to us black people to lecture us about turning out this election. But why do voters turn out? be they Black, Latino, white, rural, urban, low-income, or wealthy. Voters show up to the polls because candidates and campaigns engage them, because they see real value and real impact from their votes. Blaming voters or shaming them isn't a smart strategy. And thinking that we ought to send the first Black president to shame and lecture Black voters into showing up to save this country is definitely not a smart strategy. To win this election, we need to actually engage and empower voters. We need to speak to what's on the forefront of their minds, speak to what they're going through, demonstrating to voters that you have a spine and you're willing to speak out with boldness against hate, bigotry, and racism, and that you have a plan to improve their lives and change the structure of our government, which seems to only benefit a certain wealthy few. The voter blame game doesn't bring all the voters to the polls. Only voter engagement produces voter turnout. We've just heard clips today, starting with Start Making Sense, Breaking Down the New Voters of 2020. The Takeaway spoke with Alicia Garza on the impact of Black voters. The Brian Lehrer Show also spoke with Alicia Garza about how to talk to Black voters. Election Ride Home explained the surge in young voter turnout. The Takeaway broke down the electoral impact of the Hispanic population. Pod Save the People discussed a recent survey of evangelical Christians. Interfaith Voices spoke with Bob Roberts about the generational divide in the Christian community. The Real News Network discussed the generational divide on climate among general Republicans. The Takeaway explained the debate between bringing working-class whites into the Democratic Party versus expanding a multiracial coalition of voters. And finally, we just heard Sunday Civics explaining the nonsense of the voter blame game. Members this week will hear additional nerdy details on the Hispanic vote, the young vote, and more from Alicia Garza on the black vote, plus continued discussion with member voicemails about terrible, slippery slope arguments arguments, among other things. To hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, V. It's Dave from Olympia, Washington. Hi, Jay, also. Just listened to episode 1302, your comment at the end about the corporate structure uh, as being kind of the the root cause of the destructive nature of the modern economy. I think you're mostly right. Where I differ with you is blaming 
the corporate structure itself. The corporate structure originated as an idea to allow joint ownership of and, and joint control of something, some asset, some business. At that point, even the idea of you know private property was a reasonably enshrined as a legal right was a reasonably new concept. We were still evolving from everything belonged to the king, and you were allowed to use it. Uh, you know, you were granted some portion of it, but that wasn't actually yours. It was just you—you you could use it, uh, and that that concept evolved. But the corporate structure is is literally, in some ways, democratic. It allows more than one entity to control and own something. Now, don't get me wrong. By joint ownership, that's joint control of the asset by the ownership class. This is not some sort of you know, utopian vision where all the people involved in the process uh, share equally in the resources and the responsibilities. But truly collectivist enterprises like that, like the Mondragon Corporation, is a corporation. It's just structured differently with different sets of bylaws. I'm on the board of directors of a it's a nonprofit corporation, but you know, we just went through the process of rewriting our bylaws and those things about, you know, how do we make decisions? Who gets to make decisions? How do those people get elected? If, if done well, like joint ownership can be, you know, a fantastic and positive thing. Where I think you're right on the money is any extractive enterprise. If the goal is to extract from the environment, from the economy, from a community, that is inherently destructive, and yeah, I think the cancer metaphor is not far off. But it doesn't matter. I mean, the the, the Roman silver mines on the, the Iberian Peninsula in Spain, I mean, they were atrocious. They were human rights atrocities. They were environmental atrocities. They were these monstrous, monstrous organizations, but they were privately owned you know, by the consul at the time. So I don't think it's necessarily, you know, joint ownership in in a corporate sense that leads to that kind of, you know, horrible conditions. But the idea that the thing you're about is to extract wealth from a system and you're not, you know, trying to harvest sustainably. You are it's the difference between sustainable logging, which, you know, can happen in certain circumstances and clear cutting, just pulling a heavy chain with bulldozers and ripping every single tree out of the ground and chopping them up and, you know, hauling off the useful pieces and leaving behind just this ruined what used to be a patch of functioning forest and destroying it. The, the, the other example, which I think is um, uh, pertinent, is like Walmart. You know, Walmart is an extractive industry. They move into a little town, and much like mountaintop removal, strip mining, coal mining, they move in, they extract extract the wealth and community like you would with a you know a, an unsustainable mining operation they put as little capital into their buildings so that their quote unquote, property value is very very low so they don't pay local taxes they suck the wealth out with a siphon and then when that you know when that community is done they basically abandon the building there are you know just shells of i don't think walmart's alone in this there are shells of big box stores littering drained areas of our country and they've moved on to another area that they're extracting the wealth from 
they're not a part of the community where they're growing a business and buying and selling and engaging in you know the, the commerce in the marketplace they're an extractive industry and yeah be i think your cancer metaphor is very apt as always both of you stay awesome Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And I gotta say, we do have more callers than just Dave from Olympia. I mean, he is prolific, so we hear from him a fair amount. It just turns out that recently, I feel like people have been even more attracted to calling in to the members-only bonus show. I guess maybe the conversation going on there is even more tantalizing. So I have more voicemails. They're just for the other show. So you can do with that information whatever you like. You know, If you feel like calling in, now would be a good time. And for members... Don't worry, there are more voicemails uh, to be heard just just in the bonus episode. Of course, some of those are from Dave from Olympia, too, but, you know, we'll set that aside for a moment. Uh, now, I have a bonus clip for you today because it, it's related to today's topic, but I wanted to talk about it. So it's from a, a show where they're talking about specifically Bernie Sanders and his relationship with the electorate, in particular the black electorate, which he famously lost in the 2016 primary when Hillary Clinton got a you know, huge majority of the black vote, especially in the South, and, and that you know propelled her to the nomination. So this conversation is sort of framed as what does Bernie Sanders need to do to win more of the black vote this time around? And, and so this particular bit I found uh, interesting and led me to think of a story that I wanted to tell. So uh, we're going to talk about Bernie Sanders and, and black voters, but we have to start with the Clintons. I just want to address the Clintons really quickly. Um, and Clinton's Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton, both uh, their likability and, and favorability in the South among black Southerners. One thing that I think is not addressed and rarely addressed at all when we discuss um, Clinton's likability, one of the things I hear a lot is like, oh, you know, they had an in with the black church or they, you know, because they were, Bill was from the South and they were in Arkansas for so long and blah, 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 fill in the blank. There are lots of reasons that are given why the Clintons did so well in the South. But one of the things that I rarely, I don't think if ever have heard discussed is this idea that. If you're growing up in an environment in an environment where whites and blacks are living separately, there's spatial segregation, there's social segregation, there's a huge economic gap. And you have a white person who grows up poor, just like you, who understands you culturally, who may have grown up beside you. And I'm talking right now about, about Bill Clinton and who presents himself in a way that not is not just a matter of tokenizing black people, but being friendly with black people, being warm with black people touching Black people, I mean, literally shaking hands with Black people, these things are um, not necessarily understood in, in the North necessarily as major issues. But in the South, where we have, and people have, have talked about this sort of um, huge gap between 
white people who have black friends or friends of color at all versus the number of people of color who have white friends, this gap makes a difference. And I think seeing and growing up, and especially if you're an older uh, black person in the South, seeing a white person who's not afraid of you, who's willing to, to be friendly with you, who engages with you is important. And I think in many ways, Sanders, while he has not done anything that's like flagrantly against black people or ever rejected physically, you know, physically rejected black people, I think he doesn't have the same type of warmth among black people. And this is something that the Clintons worked on for years. It's something that um, Bill Clinton, I think, sort of grew up with. And so this makes a difference in terms of how people read you, whether or not the, you know, sort of regardless of the issues, to be honest. And I think this is an element that people sort of underestimate. And so we can go forward and talk, you know, more about, about where Sanders is messing up and should do better. But I think warmth, um, unfortunately, is something that he lacks. And that if you look at polling with Biden um, or the relation, the, you know, the response to Biden, I think this makes a difference and, and one that is significant. That's a really interesting point, because Sanders is not warm with anyone. Obviously, I've met him once and right. I was, it was sort of like refreshing <laughs> when I met him, how little he was trying to, like, you know, chat me up. He was just like, OK, what are we about to talk about? But you're saying that that lack of warmth might be read in a particularly not great way amongst some black people, particularly in the South. And seen as racist, to be honest. I mean, this is what we're used to dealing with, with a lot of white people, white peers even. Um, so that that lack of warmth can be read as um, an inability to connect with us. And now what this made me think of is just a very short story, but an incredibly powerful point that gets made from it. It's, it's one of the most sort of uniquely insightful little bits of wisdom about racism in America that maybe I've ever heard. And I I heard it years and years ago. I may never have said it on the show. I don't know where I got it from, if it was from a clip or from a listener or anything else. But um, this, I just wanted to share this with you because it, it resonates very much with how that plays out for for the Clintons and for Bernie and, and all of that. So there's just this one little example of how racism plays out in, in the world. And, and this actually isn't a story about racism. It's about the perceptions of black people due to racism, which is an enormous part of how racism plays out. It, it, it doesn't just play out with the perpetrators. It plays out in the minds of the victims of racism as well. So, you know, it's, it's not a real story. It's just like an example. So uh, a couple comes into a restaurant. They're, you know, they're looking like they're ready to have a romantic evening and you're the host or hostess getting ready to seat them. And you have a choice. Do you seat them near other people? Or do you give them the, the sort of corner, this, you know, the little romantic corner where they can sort of be on their own for their romantic evening? Well, it turns out the answer to where you should seat them may very well depend heavily on the race of the people who have come in. Now, as a white person, I can certainly attest to the idea that I would prefer to be sat in a corner by myself, you know, nice little romantic area. Uh, and I would think that that was perfectly fine. And I would think that the host was doing me a favor by giving me a nice secluded table. 
But imagine that you've gone through your whole life having large and small instances of racism being directed at you. When you come into a restaurant and a host is deciding where to seat you, your perception of that could be completely different. And you may think, if they choose to seat me far away from where anyone else is, that could be evidence of racism because they want to hide the black people in the restaurant and not make it look like this is a restaurant with black people in it. Whereas seating them next to other customers could be seen as a sign of inclusion, that they are warmly welcoming these customers and, you know, seating them amongst all the other customers, no racism involved. And the difference in perception based on lived experiences for these two hypothetical couples, a white couple and a black couple, says so much about how the dynamics of racism play out in society all the time in in ways that white people often can't imagine. White people like to think that the definition of anti-racism is to treat black people exactly like you'd treat a white person. But it turns out, if you do that, it may come across as racist, which is why the definition of anti-racism is not colorblindness and treating everyone the same. It's understanding these types of dynamics and making adjustments for it when relevant, when it makes sense. And, and so Bernie Sanders, in his natural state of relatively cold personality, even though he treats everyone exactly the same, white, black, or otherwise, comes across differently to different people. When someone's cold to a white person, we don't think, oh, they must be racist against me. They must have some prejudice against me. We just think that person is cold and, you know, doesn't have a friendly personality. When a black person has that same experience, it comes across completely differently because of their lived experience being treated coldly by white people their whole lives. So it's a fascinating dynamic, and I was I was glad to have heard that clip in, in a way that you know reminded me of that story. I hadn't thought of that in, in quite a while, but that's a that's that's a good one to uh, to keep in mind. You know, just just going through life. So now that is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in at two zero two nine 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 three nine nine one. Just a quick reminder before I go that Babbel is the language learning app designed to get you speaking a new language quickly and with confidence. Babbel's interactive lessons are created by over 100 language experts and last only 10 to 15 minutes. Getting started speaking a new language is easy. Just go to babbel.com or download the app, select the language of your choice, and try it for absolutely free. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com. Babel, speak a new language with confidence. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.